Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Eight years ago, or maybe it was seven, I don't remember exactly, but my wife and I, Kate, we moved our three very young children to Chicago for uh, a residency year for my doctoral work. And one crisp Chicago morning, we were invited to a baptism. And so we took our three very young children to the baptism. And uh, our, our one-and-a-half-year-old twins, Marin and Monica, had never been to a baptism before. I don't think they knew what exactly to make of it. But my wife and I were prepared with an arsenal of binkies, blankets, and books to help keep them happy. Uh, well, here is a picture of the twins back in the day. They are mesmerized by the magic panda dangling right over their heads, as you would be if you were in their position. Um, well, we're at the baptism, and at the prescribed moment in the rite of baptism, the pastor questioned the assembly. He said, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? And everyone present for the baptism said, I do, except for one of the twins. And it happened to be the twin who was in my arms that afternoon. She said at the top of her lungs, no. <laughs> and she continued to yell, no, 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 as I sprinted out the back door of the church. Well, outside you know, in the sunshine, she smiled at me because I think she just wanted to get a little sun. Um, and I remember, this is, you know, I really didn't think this, but I should have been thinking, you are in need of substantive liturgical catechesis. <laughs> I, I had a, a little uh, flash forward to my responsibilities as a parent. Uh, well, my wife and I, and now Marin, we all laugh at that memory, but truly an ongoing question and theme in our parenting and consequently now in my academic work is this, how can we help to form our daughters sacramentally in such a way that will evoke a consistent desire for the sacraments? I think this question of sacramental desire is a key question for us today. Uh, I begin, you know, with that story, but the issue is tremendously important. We are living in an era of widespread sacramental decline in the United States and in many countries in the West. Not far from this university, the news was reported last week that a panel from the Diocese of Pittsburgh is recommending that the diocese merge its current 188 parishes into 48 parishes. There are, of course, many reasons why such a merger may be necessary. 
including the migration of a fair uh, percentage of the population to the south and to the west, including an aging Catholic population, including a shortage of priestly vocations. But clearly, one contributing cause is the rapid decline in those who self-identify as Catholics and choose to live a sacramental life. Between the years 2000 and 2015, mass attendance has dropped in the Diocese of Pittsburgh by 100,000 people. They are in the process of developing a strong pastoral plan to focus their efforts in an evangelistic way in their diocese. And we can pray for our dear brothers and sisters in this diocese that is so close to our own. At the 2015 conference, uh, conference where the Archdiocese of Los Angeles was introduced to one of its new auxiliary bishops, Bishop Robert Barron, uh, Bishop Robert Barron commented, and I quote, that the most significant challenge facing the Catholic Church today is the attrition of our own people. The statistics are sobering, and I would refer you, if you're interested in, in uh, taking a little swim through the current statistics, I would recommend this book to you. Uh, many of my students who are here have already read this book, or at least the first couple chapters, uh, Forming Intentional Disciples, and in her first chapter, she makes a, a very strong uh, presentation of the current situation in which we stand. Uh, I want to mention just one of those statistics that are present in the book. Fully 50% of millennials who were raised Catholic no longer self-identify as Catholic. I mention this one because so many of you who are gathered here, when you are graduated from Franciscan, you have a great passion for dedicating yourself to this exact group of people, the millennial generation. Now, uh, the older paradigm that used to stand with previous generations is no longer accurate. And you know what that old paradigm is, that if uh, a young person graduates from high school and falls away from the faith during young adulthood, we could presume that they would come back when? When it's time for them to get married, right? And then if they fell away again after marriage, then we could accept, we, we could uh, expect to have them back when? When shall I, yeah, flip back to the little baby picture. When, when, uh, when children come along. That was uh, the old paradigm that certainly was in play with uh, with my parents' generation and their parents' generation. But it's no longer accurate today. There was a 2008 study by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life that found that approximately 53% of American adults have left the faith of their childhood at some point. And this is measuring the, uh, the Catholics and Christians and uh, people of many different denominations. 53% have left the faith of their childhood, and only 9% have left and returned. Uh, 
So we are in entirely different waters than we were uh, several decades ago. Now, what do we do? We should guard against the tendency to oversimplify this problem of decreasing sacramental practice. There are, of course, many different factors that are contributing to the crisis, and therefore there are going to be many various ways forward through the crisis. But this afternoon, for the next two hours, is that how long I have? No. Uh, <laughs> nervous laughter in, in the curve. <laughs> This afternoon, I'd like to examine just one particular facet of the problem, and I'd also like to explore one important avenue that will contribute, I believe, to a recovery with this problem. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Simington mentioned this. This is the, the book that has been in utero for seven or eight years and finally was born this last July. Um, in this book, I propose a number of new priorities whenever we are preparing people for the sacraments and uh, new priorities for post-sacramental catechesis. Uh, I believe that these can help advance the new evangelization that we are in so desperate need of today. So what I'd like to do is just share a few ideas uh, uh, from this book. I personally am fascinated by the decades leading up to the Second Vatican Council and the great liturgical and catechetical renewal movements that took shape in Europe and in the United States uh, in the early and mid-20th century. Over those decades, there was certainly a strong tendency among the faithful to view the sacraments as sacred actions as opportunities of significant encounter with God. But many theologians and catechetical thinkers became deeply convinced that if the laity were better able to unite themselves to liturgical prayer, that is, intelligently participate in it, then grace would flow unimpeded from the head of the mystical body to its members, to the great good of the world's renewal. A very simple expression of this conviction comes from Pope St. Pius X, who said, don't pray at Mass, but pray the Mass. Now, many of you might have no idea what, uh, what he means by this, uh, but my parents' generation certainly understood uh, that uh, that frequently during mass, people might be praying their own private devotions, praying the rosary, and uh, frequently they understood the mass as being prayed by the priest. And it's important that we're there, there's grace that's available, uh, but the more pious among us might have been engaged in, in personal prayer. Well, Pope Pius X wanted the whole of the mystical body of Christ to unite themselves to the prayer of the liturgy, which is the great sanctifying action of the church. These pioneers of liturgical renewal believed in liturgical catechetical reform, and they worked towards it. Even sometimes in the years 
uh, surrounding the First and the Second World Wars. An interesting point here. Do you know who this man is? This is Father Romano Gardini, one of the great liturgical theologians of the 20th century. And Father Gardini, oddly enough, was also the chaplain in Germany in the, in the mid to late 1930s. He was the chaplain of the Catholic youth movement in Germany. And up until 1937, the Catholic youth movement was an accepted alternative to the Hitler youth movement within Germany. But in 1937, Pope Pius XI issued an encyclical letter in its English translation with burning anxiety. And this encyclical letter was read from the pulpits of every Catholic church in Germany in 1937. And I want to give you just the taste of what was in that encyclical. Whoever exalts race or the people or the state or a particular form of state or the depositories of power above their standard value and divinizes them to an idolatrous level distorts and perverts an order of the world planned and created by God and he is far from the true faith in God. After this encyclical was read at the pulpits throughout the church in Germany, the Catholic youth movement was suppressed and had to go underground. Uh, Father Gardini was the chaplain of this, as I, as I mentioned. And so the youth movement continued to gather German Catholic young people in secret, illegally, primarily for the purpose of liturgical formation, is what they were doing, in anticipation of the hardships that everyone knew was coming. Uh, for those of you who are studying in the youth ministry concentration, this is an early form of youth ministry, is it not? Uh, in the book that I published, there is this amazing account of a woman who was a teenager in the mid-1940s, and she was participating in this underground Catholic youth movement. And uh, she was away for several days in Bavaria, in the hills, uh, doing liturgical formation, like, like a retreat, and when she came back, a friend of hers called her on the phone and said that the Gestapo is on its way to your house to interrogate you about what you just did. Uh, so uh, it's, it's uh, I guess I asked the question, is this strange to you, the idea of liturgical formation, liturgical catechesis in the midst of Germany in the early 1940s? To some, it may seem odd that a liturgical institute was founded in Paris in 1943, and that would be the year before the Normandy invasions. At a 1944 conference of this institute, Father A.M. Rojouet offered these words about why a liturgical institute is founded in the midst of the war. We have not come together, he said, 
for a scholarly work of restoration. We are not a congress of archaeologists, nor of aesthetes, nor of fragile eccentrics of the past, amateur dabblers in things of rare beauty. What moves us, what inflames us, is a missionary zeal. You see, he believed that the work of a liturgical institute could positively impact the world, even a world that was in profound conflict. During these early decades of the 20th century into the middle of the 20th century, there was an emerging conviction that the faithful needed a higher quality of liturgical formation and catechesis. Father Virgil Michael, who was a Benedictine up in Collegeville, Minnesota, uh, was the most prolific writer in the American liturgical movement in the middle of the 20th century. And he introduced the religion textbook series with these words. The religion course should have a solid liturgical basis. Okay. But more than that, the liturgy must be the very fiber of its being. It is through the sacred liturgy that Christ instructs and transforms souls into himself. The work of the teacher in religion, then, is to bring children to a conscious participation in the sacred liturgy, wherein Christ himself teaches and sanctifies them. The Second Vatican Council was the crowning moment of this movement towards liturgical and catechetical renewal. While the liturgy was certainly reformed by the Council Fathers, the catechetical ideals of the Council were tragically overlooked by many and in most instances did not actually come to fruition after the Council. If you study catechetics, it's these kinds of issues that keep you up late at night, <laughs> tossing and turning. So what happened in catechetics in those first few decades after Vatican II in the 1970s and 1980s? This is a significant area of inquiry to be sure. I want to narrow the parameters of this question just a bit and share a few introductory ideas on just one facet of the problem as it relates to liturgical formation. The Second Vatican Council, as you know, admirably proposed a new engagement of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel message and sacramental practice were not to be compartmentalized from the crises and the needs in the world, but in fact, were to be integral to the very answer to those travails. There arose then, after the council, many catechetical scholars who dedicated themselves to the intersection of faith and personal experience. There arose then, after the council, uh, many scholars who were dedicated to this question. Perhaps there was a bit of the swinging of a pendulum here. Many perceived the catechesis that came before the Second Vatican Council 
to be predominantly conceptual, focused as it was on the memorization of doctrinal formulae. And they concluded this approach was insufficient in its engagement of life experience. And so many catechetical thinkers proposed a very different set of objectives and parameters for liturgical catechesis. Thus began in the late 1960s into the 1970s, a widespread ascension of experiential modes of catechesis, all with admirable aims, I would argue, but many with means that ended up being quite problematic. The 1997 General Directory for Catechesis explicitly identifies divine revelation as the primary source for catechesis. Now, most of us in this room here would heartily agree uh, with such a statement that, yeah, we must turn primarily to scripture and tradition for the content of catechesis. But in those first few decades after Vatican II, there was a devastating trend when it came to this. Many catechetical thinkers and practitioners citing the council, uh, uh, the, council, the council's impetus to engage the world minimized the position of revelation, replacing it or setting it in an equivalent position with the life experience of those being catechized. This was especially true with mystagogical or post-sacramental catechesis. And we have time here for just one brief example of such an approach. Uh, I'd like to draw this example from a book written in 1986. Let's see if I can get everything together here. Uh, the book was written in 1986 the author of the book first defines liturgical catechesis. Uh, the objectives of liturgical catechesis are identified, and then he proposes a method. And I want you to listen to, uh, certainly to what's included in these three steps of the method, but I'd also love it if you would pay attention to what isn't included and what's missing here. So these are the three steps. Um, and I quote, Attending in the first step, we ask ourselves what we experience at liturgy. We can only learn from our liturgical experience if we attend to it and become aware of it. Attending to our experience of liturgy involves recovering our experience, describing our experience, and then naming our experience. Attending to our liturgical experience requires then that we first have to recover it from its lived, unobserved state and relive that experience in some fashion. This can be readily done, it seems to me, in one of two ways. The experience can be recovered by some form of reminiscing, powerful memories of meaningful liturgical actions are deeply embedded within us and surface easily. It only takes a relaxing, trusting setting 
and a lead question or two to revive the memories imprinted by the textures, colors, sounds, smells, and postures of the liturgy. This recovery can also be accomplished by isolating a particular gesture or symbolic action outside of its liturgical setting and performing it together with care and attentiveness. Okay, so the first step in this approach, and, this, and he, uh, the author is envisioning this for adults as a way to help adults come to understand more clearly uh, the meaning of the Mass. The first step is to remember our experience at the Mass. Um, all right, we are content with such a bare, we are not content with such a bare description, however, we quickly feel a need to name the inner quality of our experience, the feelings and the attitudes that it evokes within us. Uh, all right, the second phase is the reflecting phase. In this second step, we now ask ourselves what the experience we have begun to name means. Now, my friends, that is a fair question, isn't it? What if, if, if we've uh, been at Mass and we've received Holy Communion, for example, it's a fair question to ask, what does that mean to receive Holy Communion at the Mass? Uh, now, the question is, where do we go to find the answer to that question? The author continues, uh, as we relive our experience and try to name it for ourselves, we each begin to explore more fully what our experience can tell us about ourselves and the world. For example, what does the darkness and the anonymity of the traditional confession box tell us about God, about ourselves, about sin, about forgiveness? Conversely, what does our experience of the new rite of reconciliation, where self-disclosure is made face-to-face in the light, what does that tell us about these same things? At this point, it is important to hear one another's stories, to hear what the experience means for others. The mutual telling of our life stories is one of the most critical and effective ways of helping us understand both ourselves and others. Who aren't we coming to an understanding of? Yeah. Uh, hearing another story with understanding or entrusting our story to another person enables us to see ourselves through that person's eyes. Okay. Uh, such sharing, however, requires that we establish an atmosphere of mutual trust and respect, and it happens best in small groups. What we discover at this point is that our life stories have similar patterns and rhythms. Okay, so this is where we're going to come to understand the meaning of, uh, the, of the Mass, for example. What we discover is that there's similar patterns and rhythms. A larger, common version begins to take shape around the common stuff of our lives. So we will gather in a group, and we'll share our own experiences, and, and there's going to be some experiences that are going to be held in common with the group, and this is how we're going to come to understand the meaning of receiving Holy Communion at Mass. What's missing? It's a very important question. 
he goes on, for that larger story to be complete, we need to expand our exploration to include the story of those who have lived through these same experiences before us. Who's he talking about? Perhaps we're moving into the realm a little bit of what we would call sacred tradition, although that's not the term that's being used here. Only in this way, when we set our experience alongside theirs, can we learn from them while yet respecting what our experience teaches us. And so um, I, I want you to notice in a paradigm like this that, that we're not moving beyond ourselves in any way in order to understand the meaning of uh, the celebration of the Mass. That, uh, uh, that we, we, we may well indeed draw upon the experiences of the saints and the teachings of the church, but the author is very clear that we set those experiences at the side of our own experiences. Uh, they have no authority over us. So we see here a significant turning away from a right theology of the sacraments in favor of seeing subjective liturgical experience as a source for what we're doing in liturgical catechesis. Such a method of engaging the sacraments was, in my opinion, and is quite averse to the perennial need that we have to cultivate sacramental desire in people and sacramental fruitfulness. The author cites two sources who have inspired this methodology. The first, is Dr. Thomas Groom, and the second are the mystagogical homilies that are drawn from various fourth century bishops. Uh, now, we certainly don't have enough time here to engage the ideas of Dr. Groom on experience within catechesis, but it's perhaps sufficient here to say that much of the catechesis of the 1980s and 1990s were influenced by his writings on experience within catechesis. And these writings helped catechists fixate so much on experience that the right theology of the sacraments receded from the center. And in my opinion, the effects of this have been drastic. The second source, indicated by the author are various fathers of the church from the fourth century and their engagement of experience in their mystagogical homilings. Uh, I'd like to just give you a, a very brief taste of uh, the, uh, the fourth century homily of St. Cyril of Jerusalem uh, in order to measure uh, what we've just heard as a method as compared to what this great bishop was doing with those who had just come into the church. Now notice that he does begin with experience, but where does he end up? You began, he says to the neophytes, by entering the outer room of the baptistry. You faced to the west, heard a voice commanding you to stretch out your hand and renounced Satan as though to his face. You should realize that the symbol 
of turning to the West, harks back to the Old Testament. So he begins very concretely with the, uh, the concrete liturgical experience that these neophytes would have had at the Easter Vigil, but then he moves into the Old Testament uh, and into the Gospels in order to understand the meaning of this action of turning to the West. And uh, this great bishop then walks through each moment of uh, what they experienced at the Easter Vigil and unpacks it and moves from the concrete into the mystery of Christ. That's what we see happening so frequently in the mystagogical homilies. Uh, so my argument is this, if we remain purely on the side of experience, purely on this side of the veil of sacramental signs, if we fail to move beyond our own experience into the realm of the mystery, this is not an approach that is going to evoke curiosity or desire on the part of uh, our, our dearly beloved people today that we seek to catechize. Uh, a purely naturalized, experiential view of the sacramental life is quite easy to walk away from. John Paul II summed it up well. Let's see if that works. St. John Paul II, sacramental life is impoverished and very soon turns into hollow ritualism if it is not based on a serious knowledge of the meaning of the sacraments. Searching out the meaning of the sacraments requires us to go beyond ourselves and our experiences because we need divine revelation and we need the perennial wisdom of the church in helping us understand what is actually happening in the sacraments. And so what is my proposal for a catechetical response to today's declining sacramental practice? I have three points to share with you. Uh, number one, our emphasis as teachers must be on teaching the sacraments as opportunities for maximum divine encounter. Indeed, this is what makes the sacraments interesting to people today. St. John Paul II put it very well in CT 23, uh, that's Catechese Tridende, number 23, if you're not a code-speaking catechetics major. Uh, it is in the sacraments and especially the Eucharist that Christ Jesus works in fullness for our transformation. The catechism goes on to, uh, to in one sentence, provide a balanced and time-tested method for how we want to teach people about the sacraments. Catechism, this is Article 1075, reads, liturgical catechesis aims to initiate people into the mystery of Christ. Okay, so notice the trajectory here. In liturgical catechesis, we're moving upward in order to bring people into this mystery with the Lord, Trinitarian communion. And how do we do that? By proceeding from the visible to the invisible, 
from the sign to the thing signified from the sacraments to the mysteries. And so liturgical catechesis today has to have this trajectory where we're going to move from, uh, we can begin with our experience of the sacraments, but then we have to move beyond our experience into the mystery, into the supernatural transformative reality into which we are plunged in the sacraments. Uh, number two, a second point here. So first, again, is to emphasize that the sacraments are moments of divine encounter par excellence. Number two, we must also reinforce that such an encounter with God on the objective level has supernatural effects for us, supernatural effects. And it is these effects, again, that make the sacramental encounter attractive to the contemporary person. A very important section in the catechism uh, is seen in the text's treatment of each of the sacraments. So uh, when I talk to my own students about liturgical catechesis, my primary recommendation is that they look very carefully at the sections that are titled either the effects of the sacrament or the fruits of the sacrament. And every section in the Catechism of the Catholic Church that deals with each of the seven sacraments has a section titled either the effects or the fruits. Don't you want to know what the effects of the sacrament of confirmation are? What about the sacrament of matrimony? What are the fruits of the sacrament of matrimony? Maybe a better way to say that is, what is it that God gives to us, to the love that exists between man and woman? What is it that God does to that love within the sacrament of matrimony? I mean, if we're able to answer that, then we all of a sudden have a motivation to have a sacramental marriage, right? If we understand the fruits and the gifts that are present within that sacrament. Um, for the, I had a number of students last weekend go to weddings. Uh, what typically is the high point of the wedding mass for people who are there present? A, a lot of people would say it's the exchange of the vows. Right? That's where we're leaning forward with our cameras and taking pictures and watching the expressions on their faces. And amen. I mean, what, it is a beautiful, beautiful moment within the sacrament of matrimony uh, when a man and a woman vow one another to each other. But that's not the high point. Uh, and, and if you look at the language of the exchange of vows, the language there doesn't indicate what God gives to the couple. I would point to the nuptial blessing as the high point of the sacrament, sacramental celebration of marriage. In the nuptial blessing, this is where the epiclesis of the sacrament actually takes place, in the nuptial blessing. This is where the Holy Spirit descends upon the couple. And so this is the, the language from uh, the new translation of the rite of matrimony. And I'd like you to just look at that for a second and, and you can see what is it that God is offering to the couple through this sacrament. 
Send down on them the grace of the Holy Spirit and pour your love into their hearts so that they may remain faithful in the marriage covenant. How are they going to remain faithful in the marriage covenant? (laughs) Well, it's not just going to be by their own natural capacities. It's the fact of the love of God, the grace of the Holy Spirit that's present there. Um, A lot of people, you know, would hear language like this and and tend to dismiss it as ornamental, frou-frou, liturgical language. Uh, But we know that the words indicate what is actually taking place on the supernatural level. Uh, There are two places that we can go in the catechism that really help us understand this gift that God gives in the nuptial blessing. The first is 1624. The spouses receive the Holy Spirit as the communion of love of Christ and the church. And the Holy Spirit becomes their ever available source of love and strength to renew their fidelity. Do you see how beautiful this is? How powerful this is? That in sacramental marriage, it's not just the natural capacities of the man and the woman, but they can if they understand how, they can draw upon this infinite wellspring of grace that is present in their marriage. Um, The other section from the Catechism, which I think is really helpful, is 1642. It gets even more precise. Uh, And and listen, my friends, we all want to know how to, we want this gift in married love, don't we? This is what we want. Christ dwells with them gives them the strength to take up their crosses. And so to follow him, to rise again after they have fallen, to forgive one another, to bear one another's burdens, to be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, and to love one another with supernatural, tender, and fruitful love. Supernatural love becomes possible through the sacrament of matrimony. Now, when I uh, go out and and talk about these things with people, I typically get very nervous because many of us have no real experience of what this looks like. And so when it comes to preparing people to live uh, the sacrament of marriage, I believe it's important to go right here to the theological realities of the sacrament. But then it's going to be very important to bring in witnesses, married couples who are able to speak from their own experience of what it looks like in my circumstances to identify matrimonial grace and to be able to draw upon it. What does that look like? For my wife and myself, we we have our own stories and we could describe that in in, uh, one way or another. Uh, And uh, this is a great need today for people to know this and then to be able to describe it and speak from their experience about it. Uh, Most importantly, number three, when it comes to teaching the sacraments today, because of the reality of today's decline, business as usual in sacramental prep is a problematic position for us to take. So I suggest in this book that I wrote, a specific recovery 
of a teaching from the Second Vatican Council regarding the RCIA. The Council Fathers wrote, and this is Ad Gentes, number 14, Council Fathers wrote that the catechumenate is not a mere expounding of doctrines and precepts, but it is a training period in the whole Christian life and an apprenticeship duty drawn out during which disciples are joined to Christ their teacher. If the sacraments are opportunities for maximum encounter with God, then I would like to argue that we need to be mentored in how to approach God fruitfully in the sacraments. And every person has such different needs when it comes to how that mentoring might look. We had a beautiful day in the life of my family last year in 2016 because those twin daughters received their first Holy Communions that day. And I remember when they made their first confessions, uh, my wife and I were sitting there and, and one of them went to the priest who was up in the sanctuary and the other one shuffled very slowly uh, to the line to go anonymously in the confessional. And when they finished, they had such opposite reactions. Marin, who was the one that was saying no, 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 no in her infancy, Marin went to confession and she was nearly jumping down the steps of the sanctuary. Uh, she was so excited at what she just experienced. Monica came back, uh, and her whole body was shaking. This had required such a summoning of herself. Her whole body was shaking, and they both sat down together and prayed their penance. Well, Marin turns to me when they're done, and she says, when? Can we do that again, she said. And Monica was still shaking, but she very courageously nodded her head yes. Well, my wife and I had this, you know, this insight that, my goodness, we desperately want them to live a fruitful sacramental life over the course of their lifetimes. And they're both going to need individual encouragement, apprenticeship, and mentoring. A generic sort of an approach is going to be highly unlikely to meet the individual specific needs. And so, uh, so that's my proposal, is that when we're forming people for the sacraments today, we need to look for ways to help bring about a culture of apprenticeship. In catechesis, yes, but who are the primary apprenticers? Yeah, the parents obviously have uh, this significant responsibility to apprentice their children. And so any investment that a catechist can make into the catechetical relationship between parent and child is pure gold, as far as I'm concerned. So uh, in no way, Am I proposing some sort of a reactionary turn back to the preconciliar catechetical approaches? Because liturgical catechesis has to be oriented to a fruitful evangelistic living of the Christian life. Um, 
but we need to look for opportunities and create catechetical structures that will facilitate a mentoring in how to encounter God fruitfully in the sacramental life. Uh, in the book that I wrote, I also, I also believe that catechists um, need to teach in such a way that specific abilities are formed within those that we're, we're teaching. Uh, and I've identified three. Number one, we all need, don't we, the ability to move distractions to the side and be attuned to God in the sacramental encounter. That's number one, being attuned to God. Number two is the ability to unite ourselves to God in the sacramental encounter. And that's going to require that we learn the language of liturgy. And the language of liturgy is very much that we move from the visible and the tangible and the earthy into the invisible mystery. That's a language that we need to learn. And the liturgy presumes that we know that language as we walk through the door. That language, by the way, is best taught by parents and in a secondary way by catechists and teachers. Number three, the third ability that I believe we, we need to, to have is that ability to cooperate with the grace that we receive in a sacramental encounter. Because the sacraments are intended to change us. And as we're transformed, we have an effect in the world. Um, so I provide much more detail, practical examples, applications in the book. Uh, but I wanted to give you some sense of, of the practical ramifications of this. Uh, finally, last thing I want to say here is I believe that the liturgy, which is the summit and the font of the whole activity of the church, will become the wellspring for the new evangelization if our people are apprenticed well. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.